This is the last of four lectures in a series I've been giving, and in the last three, we've been tracing the winding path of artistic culture and patronage in England. We started with the Tudors, and we saw the way that in Tudor England, what we call art today was admired for its ingenuity and its costliness rather than what we might today consider uh, its artistic value. Easel painting was a very minor element in the royal and aristocratic interior. Uh, everybody much preferred um, textiles and plate as a way of decorating their houses. Uh, then England, isolated from Europe by religion and war during the Elizabethan period, was reconnected with the mainland after peace with Spain, which was brought by James I. And this allowed a small number of very rich aristocrats close to the crown to participate in collecting Italian and, in particular, Venetian painting. But the artistic interests of the royal family and court were esoteric for most people and lacked any wider impact. Things began to change after the Restoration, as easel paintings suddenly became more available. People began to buy paintings on a large scale to decorate their houses. But in the 40 years or so after the Restoration, the interests of the elite were wide-ranging and essentially were what we, I suppose, would today call scientific. Portraits and landscapes were amassed for pleasure and decorative effect, but they didn't form deliberate assemblages, what today I suppose we would call art collections. So sort of in summary of my uh, first um, three lectures, in the 16th and the 17th centuries, the communities who were interested in what we call art and who invested in it were essentially in the circle of the court and the people who were not in this gilded circle looked to the court for guidance on artistic matters. The crown was actually very much in the lead of fashion. And even for a monarch like Charles II, for whom cultural patronage was a minority interest, the court was the undisputed leader of fashion. Last time, um, I described how Charles II had patronised Antonio Verrio um, at Windsor Castle, creating uh, an architectural and artistic model that was followed by the aristocracy in their houses for the ensuing 40 years. Well, this evening, we are going to follow the decline of the cultural influence of the court. After 1700, for a period of uh, more than a century, leadership of high artistic culture left the monarchy, the court, and the palaces, and it rooted itself amongst the aristocracy and the upper commercial classes. As I explained last time, these people had already come to regard knowledge of painting and sculpture as a mark of gentility. But after 1700, and definitely after 1720, it was these people who were setting the fashion rather than following it. Now, the rapid decline of the cultural influence of the monarchy was paralleled by a shift in political power from the crown to the aristocracy. And it was epitomised, I think, perhaps more than anything else, by the state of the crown's principal royal residence in London. In um, 1698, Whitehall Palace, which you see a plan of here, the seat of the English monarchy since 1536, burned down. It might have appeared to the casual observer uh, a sort of ramshackle conglomeration of buildings, but it was symbolically the heart of the nation, then perhaps also as now. It was big, it was famous, it was impressive, but it was now just a pile of rubble. William III and then much more decisively, Queen Anne moved the headquarters of the monarchy to St. James's Palace that you see here. Now, of course, a sovereign's principal residence conveys messages about their power and their cultural positioning. 
This is why Louis XIV, for instance, spent so much money on creating Versailles. The British monarchy, after 1714, was based at St James's, and there's no doubt that this building was pretty unimpressive. The problem was that it was never designed to be an impressive symbol of the monarchy or of the nation. It was built, quite simply, to safeguard the monarch's children, and as such, never had a principal public facade. There was thus, I think, a gulf between any national or international understanding of a palace and the reality of this modest building which had been converted to undertake a magnificent task. When the German aristocrat, Baron Bielfeld, visited George II's court at St. James's in 1741, he thought it a lodging house, crazy, smoky and dirty. In 1823, the Morning Post stated bluntly that, I quote, the outside will never look like a royal palace until the brick walls have been covered with a stone facing ornamented with pillars and porticos. The following year, an MP said uh, in the House of Commons that, and I quote, St. James's Palace looks more like an almshouse than a kingly residence, and it's a disgrace to the country. Although these voices were raised against St. James's by Britons who'd travel abroad and thought St. James's a pale reflection of the might of the British crown, there were others that saw it as an appropriate constitutional expression of the monarchy's role. When the poet and diplomat Matthew Pryor was shown around Versailles by one of Louis XIV's household officials, he was asked whether William III's achievements were celebrated in English royal houses. Uh, Pryor piously proclaimed that, I quote, the monuments of my master's actions are to be seen everywhere but in his own house. In response to criticisms by St. James's by uh, Baron Bielfeld, the translator of his letters, a man called William Hooper, sprang to the defence of St. James's. He thought, and I quote, the glory of the monarch consists not in a handful of tinsel courtiers or in expensive and pompous festivals, but in the ease and affluence, the freedom, the dignity and the happiness of his people. These people were, he reflected, um, uh, he, he, sorry, these people were reflected, he thought, in the royal crown, which was given luster far superior uh, to the, what he called the blaze of the court of an absolute monarch. So for him, and for many of his contemporaries, absolutism was expressed in brick, stone, and oil paint. Matthew Pryor thought Versailles the foolishest thing in the world, where he thought Louis XIV was shown galloping in every ceiling. St. James's, in this view, could thus be seen as the ideal expression of limited monarchy, as constituted after 1689 and the Bill of Rights. The Georgian monarchy, ensconced for ceremonial purposes at St. James's, displayed an architectural carapace that was, in fact, deliberately understated. George I, who had some interest in cultural matters, but disliked ceremonial and courtly formality, rejected Sir John Vanbrugh's plans for replacing St. James's, his plans for extending Kensington, and for finishing what William III had started at Hampton Court. Even when George I was offered the means of financing a complete rebuilding of Whitehall by the creative financial genius of Sir Robert Walpole, he didn't take up the offer. Instead, he supported extremely modest alterations and adaptations at Kensington and Hampton Court. In typical Hanoverian fashion, George I's disdain for ceremony encouraged his son's passion for it. 
Lord Harvey famously observed, I quote, all the pageantry and splendor of badges and trappings of royalty were as pleasing to the son as they were irksome to the father. This didn't at first make a material difference to the appearance of the court. Daniel Defoe, in his tour of England, published in the mid-1720s, drew a contrast between the splendour of the court and its official seat. I quote, The palace of St James's, though the winter receptacle of all the pomp and glory of this kingdom, is really mean in the comparison of the glorious court of Great Britain. The splendour of its nobility, the wealth and the greatness of its attendants, the economy of the house and the real splendour of the whole royal family. These outdo all the courts of Europe. And yet, this palace comes beneath those of the most petty princes in it. Now, this um, very nice uh, print shows the arrival of George I at, um, at St. James's. And I show it here because it supports the point that... Um, was uh, I've just made uh, and was made by Daniel Defoe. And that is that although the palace was really mean, the splendour and the, 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 the number of attendants and the way they were dressed was, uh, was, was very, very grand. Well, George II's burst of courtly glory came to a crushing end with the death of Queen Caroline in 1737. After this, the devastated king withdrew from public ceremonial as much as he could. He ceased to take the court to Hampton Court, his biggest and most modern royal palace. And George II didn't only fail to build anything of any significance, but he actually had complete disdain for what we would regard as high culture. Lord Harvey, the court wit and gossip, tells us in his memoirs, that, I quote, the king used often to brag of the contempt he had for books and letters. He had a penchant for what the poet Alexander Pope called gun, drum, trumpet, blunderbuss and thunder. The only paintings he really liked were erotic ones, once complaining that his gigantic fat Venus had been removed from Kensington and demanding its immediate return. The point is, I'm afraid to say, that George II was deliberately and perversely philistine in his tastes. Not so his grandson. After his accession, George III acquired the freehold of Buckingham House, a large aristocratic mansion built on the western edge of St James's Park, um, a stone's throw from uh, the Royal Palace at St. James's. The purpose of buying this building was to provide a suitable residence for the Queen, because Somerset House, the Queen's official historic London residence, was now very old and in an unfashionable part of London. Buckingham House, which had been uh, built in 1702-5, had appropriated the royal landscape of St. James's Park. And... um, After its purchase by the king in 1762, uh, improvements were made to make it fit for royal occupation. And in fact, in 1775, it became officially the queen's um, residence. So in the 18th century, the contrast between Buckingham House and St. James's, the king's and queen's residences uh, in St. James's, uh, and their European equivalents was really stark. And it provides a commentary on the British monarchy's long, slow passage from what I call sovereign rule to sovereign reign. From as early as 1702, a combination of constitutional shifts and the destruction of Whitehall meant that St James's epitomised the question of whether the sovereign embodied the nation in all his deeds, in France uh, you'd say l'état c'est moi, or just embodied the ceremonial part of the nation. In the former state, when the sovereign embodied everything, 
you'd expect the sovereign's residence to be of great magnificence. In the latter, when the sovereign's only uh, embodying the ceremonial part of, of government, uh, the residence should be suitable only to the needs of the royal family. And so, from the accession of Queen Anne till the accession of Queen Victoria, a period of 134 years, St. James's was the representation in brick and stone of the political and constitutional debate over the role and powers of the monarchy. Some felt it a national disgrace, others the appropriate home for a constitutional monarch. Now, what, of course, is astonishing about all this is that while Queen Anne, the sovereign of a nation which was rapidly emerging as the most powerful in the world, lived at St. James's Palace, Parliament was paying for the construction of a Baroque palace covering four acres on a European scale for one of its courtiers. On the east gate of Blenheim Palace, which you see here, is an inscription which reads, Under the auspices of a munificent sovereign, this house was built for John, Duke of Marlborough, and his Duchess Sarah by Sir J. Vanborough between the years 1705 and 1722. The ancient royal manor of Woodstock, one of the greatest royal possessions, together with a grant of £240,000 towards the building of Blenheim, was given by Queen Anne and confirmed by an Act of Parliament. This extraordinary fact did not escape contemporaries. Daniel Defoe, who we've already heard from this evening, thought that the Dukes of Marlborough would never be able to afford to keep up such an enormous palace. He wrote, and I quote, nothing below royalty and a prince can support an equipage suitable to the living in such a house. And one may, without a spirit of prophecy, say that at some time or another, Blenheim will return to be, as the old Woodstock once was, the palace of a king. Well, as we know, Defoe was wrong, but he was making an observation which was increasingly made of the great houses of the aristocracy, and that is their princely nature. Princely, a word increasingly used to describe the houses of the nobility. Now, after 1688 and the Glorious Revolution, the aristocracy effectively took control of the government. They dominated the cabinet, the armed forces, the civil service, and through patronage, effectively controlled the House of Commons. The aristocracy governed, and they were expected to govern. Unlike the aristocracy of France, they never became isolated from their communities. They were political, social, and crucially, economic leaders of society, and very few people argued with that. After 1660, the size of the aristocracy grew. In 1658, the English peerage numbered 119. But Charles II, who had an awful lot of debts and favours to repay, granted 43 new peerages in the 25 years after the Restoration. This is John Maitland, the first Duke of uh, Lauderdale, one of those 43 new peerages. But I think even more importantly, Charles created dukes, like um, the Duke of Lauderdale, the highest rank, 14 of them in all. Some of these were revival, but the point is uh, there were still 14 more dukes in 1685 than there had been in 1660. When William III came to the throne, he also had pressing reasons to reward those who had supported him. He created 27 new titles, including seven more new dukedoms. Queen Anne created 45 new titles. And so, by 1714, there were 170 peers. This 
very rapid expansion didn't continue into the 18th century. And the Hanoverians were very reluctant to create new peerages. So the point is that there was a massive expansion of the ruling class in a very short period between 1660 and 1714. Now, the important point about this is that we have to remember that peers were expected to have an income sufficient to support the dignity of their position. In 1701, it was thought that uh, a minimum income of £4,000 a year was uh, appropriate for a viscount and a minimum of £3,000 a year for a baron. Interestingly, uh, Sarah, the uh, Duke of Marlborough's wife, who's recently been given a rather alarming historical role in the movie The Favourite, if you've seen it, you know what I'm referring to, um, was very reluctant to accept a dukedom for her soldier husband, uh, John Churchill, you see, here, because she thought that his income wasn't up to maintaining the status of a duke. And it was only when she was given uh, a grant of £5,000 a year was she uh, finally mollified. But the highest incomes were vastly higher than this. In 1683, the rental receipts from the Earl of Rutland's estates were £14,482 a year, while the Duke of Devonshire's average annual income was at least £17,000 a year. The Duke of Newcastle was netting £25,000 a year in the following decade. By the time uh, George I came to the throne, the Dukes of Newcastle, Bedford and Beaufort all had incomes of more than £30,000 a year, and four other Dukes had incomes between £20,000 and £30,000 a year. And these incomes, which were extremely large, and I'll give you some comparisons in a moment, were reinforced by three factors. The first was the ruthless use of the entail, uh, which uh, allowed estates to be passed legally from the uh, uh, father to the eldest son without being subdivided. So this had the effect of keeping these big estates together rather than them being uh, broken up and, um, and dispersed. The second uh, uh, factor that reinforced these huge incomes were advantageous marriages, uh, very often within the aristocracy, but also very judici judiciously organised with the uh, wealthiest uh, merchant classes, so bringing new money into these families and also consolidating the family's um, wealth and um, estates. Um, and the third uh, thing that happened was the very skillful use um, of uh, acquiring debt, particularly in the form of mortgages, which were used to um, fund improvement and the expansion of estates. So these devices, the entails, uh, the marriage and the mortgages, magnified the returns from these aristocratic estates and consolidated their economic base. At the same time as both the numbers and the uh, spending power of the nobility increased, the ability of the crown to spend on cultural projects rapidly declined. In 1689, soon after the accession of William and Mary, Parliament granted them £600,000 a year for their civil expenses, that is to say, as opposed to their military expenses, which Parliament would cover, um, the army and the, 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 the navy. Previously, uh, royal expenditure had been covered through a mix of the Crown's hereditary revenues and special one-off grants from Parliament. Uh, on the accession of George I, Parliament set what became known as the Civil List, and they set it at £700,000 a year. That is to say about 15% of the national budget. Of this £700,000 a year, 
one-third was immediately consumed by the royal household. And a further £100,000 a year was reserved for the Prince of Wales. Most of the rest went on the costs of running the national administration, the salaries of ministers, the costs of maintaining the judiciary and the diplomatic service. There was also the cost of maintaining the royal estates, the royal palaces, which included the Palace of Westminster. All these costs um, mounted up. And by 1720, the crown was £600,000 in debt. Now, if you roughly average um, that out, it shows that the crown was overspending by about £100,000 a year. Now, one of the key problems was the cost of the royal household, of the uh, royal court. And here you see... um, the costs of the royal household. You can see um, what I was saying under George uh, I, so just over £250,000. But you can see how the cost of the household went up under George II to more um, like £325,000. This is an enormous sum of money. And since the Restoration, most aristocratic households had been rapidly scaling back uh, their size. There were a small number of old-fashioned dukes that insisted on maintaining large-scale medieval hospitality, but most uh, didn't. So the Duke of Chandos at um, Cannons was very unusual in having uh, 92 servants. Um, Most uh, uh, households had had a fraction of that. Part of the reason for this rapid scaling down in the size of aristocratic households was the expense of maintaining large houses in London, as I explained in my last lecture. Very few could afford the cost of medieval-style hospitality in the countryside as well as a palace in the town. And as a result, the size of these aristocratic households rapidly uh, diminished. Roger North, who wrote a treatise called On Building, contrasted the old form of his hospitable house with the newer houses that started to be built um, after the Restoration. And he lamented the, and I quote, abolishing of grandeur and stateliness that that sort of former ages affected and wished that the gentry and nobility would look further for their invention than the suburban models which may serve a family in a London expedition but not in country living which requires something more like a court. But he and few other critics who lamented the shrinkage in size of aristocratic households were on their own because aristocrats explicitly did not want their households to be like a court, as Roger North put it. This determination of the aristocrats to keep their households small and the monarchy to keep their household big um, set the royal household apart from the rest. It was larger and more expensive than any other single institution in the land, costing, as you can see, Um, well upwards of a third of a million pounds a year. Now, the decline in the political, the financial, and the cultural importance of the monarchy and the court, coupled with the rise in the number and wealth of the nobility, needs to be seen against a background of shifting uh, priorities and concerns in the cultural sphere. In my last lecture, I explained how the period after the Restoration was one of scientific inquiry and curiosity. But as the 17th century turned into the 18th, the interests of this generation of amateur scientists and collectors began to look a bit ridiculous. While John Evelyn wrote enthusiastically about things petrified 
eggs in which the yolk rattled, a piece of beef with the bones in it, and a crystal containing a drop of water not congealed, but moving up and down when shaken, the gentlemen of the early 18th century were much less impressed. And I've juxtaposed these two pictures, which make the point beautifully. On the left-hand side, you can see John Tradescant showing off his amazing collection of shells. On the right-hand side, you can see the virtuosi, the dilettante of the 18th century, who uh, had absolutely no interest in a pile of um, shells whatsoever. In 1810, Addison invented a spoof will belonging to a collector, Sir Nicholas Jimcrack. It was full of daft legacies, such as one box of butterflies, a female skeleton, and a dried cockatrice, which were left to his wife. His receipt for preserving caterpillars and three crocodile eggs were left to his daughters. And my rat's testicles were lent to a learned friend. The fact is that fashion had moved on and the appreciation of painting and sculpture had become the sole defining mark of gentility and education. Foreign curiosities, rocks, minerals, and natural history specimens did not make up a gentleman's education. The virtuosos of the 18th century were not those who compiled compiled cabinets of curiosities, but the dilettante, men who had travelled the continent, refining their tastes and assembling large collections of classical art and souvenirs of their time abroad. In my previous lectures in this series, I've emphasised the importance of two dates in the development of the arts and architecture in England. 1603, when the uh, war with Spain ended, and uh, the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. After both of these dates, uh, the severed connections with Europe were re-established, and uh, the English flooded over uh, the Channel, uh, causing changes in taste and fashion. Tonight, I want to introduce a third date for you. Between 1702 and 1713, Europe was consumed by the war of Spanish succession, making foreign travel extremely difficult for the English uh, aristocracy. This war was brought to an end by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. And this treaty, exactly like the Treaty of London in 1603 and the restoration of 1660, suddenly reopened Europe to British travellers. And it's really from this date that the Grand Tour proper begins. The travel uh, of young aristocrats to the Low Countries and France and to Italy to acquire education and taste. And here you can see um, a group of young English gentlemen um, in Rome by um, the, the, the Colosseum and the Archer of Constantine sitting down Um, discussing the wonders of the classical world. Because, you see, young men like this had had a classical education. And the Grand Tour took them to the very places which they had learnt about in their books back at home uh, in their family houses. They saw monuments, they saw ruins, they met dealers, they saw painters, and they were accompanied by expert tutors who fed their interest and helped furnish them with souvenirs. Here is a wonderful portrait of Douglas, the eighth Duke of Hamilton, on the left, the young boy. Uh, He's on Grand Tour with uh, Sir John Moore, um, uh, the physician on the right, um, and uh, Moore's uh, son, John. Uh, They uh, are in Switzerland, Through the window, you can see a view of Geneva, and they stayed there um, for two years. So this is a very typical uh, site of the uh, the Union. You can see how young uh, some of the grand tourists actually were. Now, if you are collecting, 
two things are necessary as well as the urge to collect. The resources to do so and a plentiful supply of goods. Well, we've just seen how well-placed the English um, aristocracy was to spend. These uh, young men went on the Grand Tour, their pockets uh, laden with cash. And here you can see um, uh, groups of Grand Tourists here um, inspecting um, statues which they uh, um, potentially um, are interested in buying, including this uh, chap who's climbing up and um, poking the Venus de Milo by the looks of it. Um, but as well as the wealth, they also needed the goods. And the years after the Treaty of Utrecht saw the ending of the great competitive collecting rivalries of the Italian families. Not only were the leading Italian ducal families no longer fighting for new acquisitions, they were actually willing and eager to sell some of the collections that they had previously amassed. But this was a hazardous path for the young English noblemen to follow. The continent was awash with fakes, botched-up sculptures and bad paintings. Nevertheless, English lords managed to amass between them an astonishing quantity of fantastic painting and sculpture. So let's look uh, just for a moment at Lord Leicester, an aristocrat who lived nowhere near Leicester but possessed a giant estate in North Norfolk. He still does. Thomas Cook inherited his father's estate at the age of 10. And five years later, he became one of the first generation of young men to travel to peaceful Europe after the Treaty of Utrecht. Six years later, in 1718, he returned to his estate at Holcomb, and he began to build himself a magnificent house. Over a period of 33 years, don't forget he inherited when he was 10, 33 years of building, his expenditure on his new mansion averaged £2,700 a year. Leicester furnished his new house with sculptures and painting that he bought on his grand tour, but he also commissioned buyers to act for him in Rome when he got back, in particular to buy sculpture for his projected sculpture gallery, uh, which you see um, here. Meanwhile, paintings by Rubens, uh, Van Dyck, Guido Reni, Poussin, Rosa, all arrived in packing cases in Norfolk, as did drawings by Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci. And of course, this is a, a capriccio, it's not a real scene, but um, it shows the studio of um, a, a, an artist in Rome and the buyer's coming, and here's somebody um, uh, inspecting a painting, which uh, no doubt he's being flogged by one of the gentlemen uh, on the left-hand side. Actually, they probably weren't gentlemen. They were probably crooks, but we won't argue about that. Um, the house itself, and here is Holcomb Hall, uh, was designed through a combination of the talents of Lord Burlington, William Kent, and a Norfolk architect, Matthew Brettingham, together with the genius of Earl Leicester himself. They attempted to create the sort of country house that they believed an ancient Roman aristocrat would have enjoyed. Serious consideration was given to ancient sources, and uh, its remarkable hard yellow brick that it's made out of uh, was a careful match to Roman bricks that had been sent back from Rome and were copied faithfully in Norfolk. It's really hard to imagine that that is actually uh, a brick building. Um, the bricks are brilliantly made, but you have to remember there is no building stone in Norfolk, so he had no choice but to build it out of this brick, which was designed to look exactly like um, stone. And uh, when uh, he finished the job, uh, he had himself uh, um, uh, uh, carved uh, by Rabiliac um, in the guise of a Roman patrician. This is how he saw himself. The interiors of the house were also carefully designed to evoke those of Roman houses. Uh, first, 
using Vitruvius's descriptions, but then uh, digging into the works of um, Inigo Jones, because uh, Jones had used details from ancient Roman buildings, and he'd uh, combined them with features designed by 16th century Italian architects. Uh, uh, Leicester, uh, Burlington and Kent um, looked at buildings like the Queen's House in Greenwich and the Banqueting House uh, in Whitehall, uh, which they took many references uh, from. And you can see here um, the way that uh, this building has this inspiration from Rome. And the important point, which I'll come on to in a moment, but I just want to mention it while this screen is up, is that they were looking to Roman public buildings for their inspiration. Of course, no actual Roman house looked anything like this. Um, but th these are the remains that they saw in Rome, which were all uh, remains of Roman public uh, buildings. Now, crucial in the development of this new type of Roman-inspired interior were Lord Burlington, uh, the uh, Scottish architect Colin Campbell, and William Kent. Lord Burlington's townhouse, Burlington House and Piccadilly, still partially there, and his suburban villa at Chiswick, entirely there, both strove to create interiors that were authentically Roman. The ceiling of the octagonal saloon at the centre of Chiswick House was modelled on one of the most famous buildings in uh, Rome, uh, the Basilica of Maxentius, while the apses in the gallery uh, were modelled on the temple of Venus uh, and Rome. And this makes the point, uh, or reinforces the point, that the models that were being followed were found in Roman public buildings rather than domestic ones. Uh, and at uh, many other uh, houses, and I'll just give you an example um, of of one here, um, uh, Houghton Hall, also in Norfolk, uh, William Kent, took control of interior decoration in a completely new way. No longer was uh, oak panelling favoured for the grandest rooms. Grandest rooms were now stuccoed and painted in imitation of stone. And so here you have the, um, the, the, the hall at Houghton, the centre of the building. Uh, uh, this, this is stone. It's in Norfolk. It is stone, so incredibly expensive to build, uh, given that all the stone had to be brought um, from Northamptonshire. And you can see here the way that um, uh, William Kent has plundered details from Roman public buildings and sort of applied them to the walls uh, here to create the, his uh, fantasy notion of the sort of house that a great Roman general or senator would have actually lived in. But of course, if such a person were magically to come back to life and walk into that room, they'd be utterly mystified uh, by this, um, this, this con concoction. Um, this was a really dramatic change to the way um, great houses looked because the oak panelling and dark paint gave way to these very light spaces, which were often um, enlivened with a touch of gilding. Uh, less grand rooms might still be panelled, but here oak gave way to light painted softwood. This is the uh, long gallery at Kensington Palace, redecorated by uh, William Kent. The, the, the actual gallery was constructed by... Uh, King William III. And in William III's time, uh, all this joinery you see here and here, this was uh, all uh, unpainted oak, as was uh, the, the chimney breast. The ceiling was painted white. So it had a very, very different feel. And what uh, Kent does is uh, modernizes the, the room. He paints a, a new ceiling. He paints the, the wood this light color. He gilds it. Uh, he designs the frames for the great paintings on the wall and um, really transforms the appearance of the interior. Uh, at the same time, there were big advances in paint manufacture um, and, uh, and now ready-mixed paint could be bought rather than having to make it on site. And this helped spread the fashion of these stand standardised um, stone colours. 
But above all, these great houses were now a vehicle for displaying the paintings and sculpture bought on the Grand Tour. At a house like Holcomb, which you see here, the paintings weren't just randomly dispersed, nor were they arranged in a sort of modern way by, by school, but they were conceived as part of the architecture of the room, and they were given frames that were designed by the architect. The iconography of the paintings was much more easily read than today, and subjects were grouped to create themes. The saloon at uh, Holcomb uh, was hung with Roman subjects, which could be interpreted as a homage to Lady Leicester and her husband as defender of female virtue. And Holcomb had an astonishing collection of uh, classical sculpture. I've already showed you the gallery, but it also had this absolutely amazing uh, library, which I happen to think, just by the way, is one of the mo most beautiful rooms in England. The sheer numbers of sculptures and paintings imported from Europe into England by the grand tourists will never be known exactly. But between the 1720s and the 1770s, around 50,000 paintings, 500,000 etchings and engravings were imported from Italy, France and Holland. In a single year, 1725, more than 330 paintings arrived from Italy, 200 paintings arrived from France, 120 arrived from Holland, and these were just part of a total of 762 paintings that came to England uh, in all. In the same year, 11,000 prints and engravings um, entered England from the continent. While uh, George I and George II collected and built very little, the accession of George III was seen by some to be a sign that the monarch might again lead fashion and perhaps into the bargain build a palace worthy of the name of Britain. George uh, had been taught architectural drawing by Sir William Chambers, and he was believed to be something of a connoisseur. And this was confirmed when, early in his reign, the king created the new post um, of architect of works, which was shared by the two most fashionable architects of the time, Sir William Chambers, who you see there, and Robert Adam. Not only this, but, uh, uh, in, um, but, but Chambers was, in 1761, Chambers was commissioned to design a new palace to be built at Richmond to replace the antiquated piles of Hampton Court and uh, Windsor. And this is what he designed. Uh, it was to cost about £90,000, and it would have been about the same size as Holcomb Hall. Work even began on this great project, which wouldn't have rivaled the great palaces of 18th century Europe, but would have at least put the English crown on a level with its own subjects. But this, like so many royal projects, floundered and fell, and the building, despite a dozen, dozen uh, revisions to its design, was eventually uh, abandoned. But the most extraordinary thing about George III's failure to complete Richmond Palace was that it was for what I think was a completely new reason. If you look back to the beginning of the 17th century, Charles I didn't build any palaces because he didn't have any money. Charles II had the money, but he died and didn't have the time. William III did build, but, but like Charles II, didn't live long enough to see the fruits of his labours. George I and George II weren't interested in building, so why didn't George III complete Richmond if he had the time, the money, uh, and the money in the bank? Well, the reason seems to be that he just didn't have the enthusiasm or energy needed to drive the thing forward. So instead, he spent some uh, £70,000 on remodelling Buckingham House in London, uh, a more domestic and comfortable residence 
uh, for his uh, wife, which I showed you earlier. So what did become of uh, architectural uh, patronage uh, uh, in the Hanoverian era as far as the crown is concerned? Well, as the civil list was created, Parliament took control of the institutions of state. After the accession of George III, Parliament appropriated all civil expenditure, leaving the civil list only to pay for the expenses of running the monarchy. But from 1689, the institutions of state, especially the navy, were the responsibility of Parliament. And thus came about the two most important and spectacular architectural commissions of the 18th century. First, the Royal Hospital for Seamen at Greenwich, created out of the remains of a destroyed Tudor palace and an abandoned Stuart one. Ill-educated visitors travelling to London up the Thames must have mistaken it for a royal palace. And its magnificence must have led to an anticipation of an even more spectacular city centre royal residence, an expectation which, of course, was dashed when they finally saw St James's. And then there was Somerset House, made possible by the sale of the old royal palace to Parliament. This was a palace for civil servants, covering some six acres on the banks of the Thames. It cost Parliament some £462,000. These two buildings represented the triumph of the institutions of the state over the crown just as decisively as the rise of the great country houses filled with the loot of the Grand Tour represented the triumph of the aristocracy over the monarchy. So with this, ladies and gentlemen, I want to finish. Over my four lectures this year, we followed a journey that, to us, with the privilege of hindsight, seems inevitable, smooth, and interrupted. As your narrator, I've told a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. But of course, what we have to remember is that, in fact, none of this was inevitable. The so-called Whig interpretation of history that charts the march of progress and sees the inevitable decline of the crown in favour of parliamentary supremacy was in fact not inevitable. But what it does is explain the unique landscape of 18th century Britain. A country adorned with enormous mansions of the aristocracy, furnished with the greatest art that money could buy, while the Georgian monarchs lived in old, run-down and unfashionable residences favouring military and rural um, pursuits. These uh, three images here are the residences of the King of France, Versailles, the Emperor of Austria, Schönbrunn, and the King of England, Kew Palace, where he lived for several years in the hope, where George III lived for several years in the hope that a great palace would be built uh, in, uh, uh, in, in, in Richmond. Uh, and this is um, uh, a slide showing at the bottom the home of George III's sick and injured seaman and two of his aristocrats, the Earl of Carlisle and the Duke of Devonshire. These uh, two images, uh, two slides with the six images, are, I think, a remarkable illustration of the shifts in political economic and cultural influence in Britain in the period between Henry VIII and George III. Thank you very much.